Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. Uh, we are thrilled with all the feedback the ladies have been receiving for this series of Musclet. It's great to see it being so well received and these discussions being shared and, and liked. But we do need you to help us. We need you to leave a five-star review. We need you to click subscribe and need you to tell people because we've no ads or sponsors. We rely entirely on you. And if you value the Tortoise Shack content, please check out our other podcasts on tortoiseshack.ie and throw us a few quid on the Patreon. It is the only way we keep these mics on and the conversations flowing. Thanks for the support. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. But please, 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 please make sure, particularly when it comes to a new series like Newslet, that you get behind it and let people know. Word of mouth is the only way to spread it. Thanks so much and enjoy this excellent conversation. Welcome to Mooscoat. My name is Rosie Mead, and today I'm in conversation with Dr. Eilish Ward, formerly of the Department of Political Science and Sociology at NUIG. Eilish is the author of Self, which was published by Cork University Press as part of the Shirokt series in 2021. And that book is the focus of today's discussion. In our interview, we discuss Eilish's motivations for writing self and how it integrates her interest in the social sciences, psychotherapy, and in Buddhist thought and practice. Eilish reflected on the burdens neoliberalism places on young people in particular, and she also explained her use of the acronym CARP to capture how the neoliberal self is constituted as competitive, autonomous, resilient, responsibilized, perfectible, and positive. We also explored what she regards as the trap of the therapy culture and later on her thoughts on some of the misuses of mindfulness. Eilish explained the Buddhist concepts of non-self, anatta, independent origination and how they urge us to recognize our, inter- our interrelationships with others. She also talked about what these concepts might contribute to a progressive politics as well as her experiences of researching Buddhist piecework in Cambodia. We concluded with some thoughts on sources of hope and further learning. So welcome, Eilish. It's lovely to have you here. And thanks so much for agreeing to participate in the Muscle series. Thank you so much, Rosie. And it's really good to be here talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Eilish, your book self, as I already mentioned, was published by Cork University Press in 2021. And I'm going to have to declare my own vested interest in the book because I'm one of the editors of the Shirok series and Self is one of the books in the Shirok series. Um, and I hope it's fair to say that the book brings together, I think, a number of your interests. It kind of reconciles them within a single text. Your interest in psychotherapy, your interest in social science and your interest in Buddhism. Before we get into the discussion of the actual contents of the book in more detail, would you mind maybe telling us a little bit about why you felt motivated to write this book at this time? And how it reflects the diverse interests that I've mentioned. Yeah. Um, The book, maybe I'll just say a tiny bit about my own background because it partly explains in a way. I I, I came to academic life um, as a mature student and and a little bit late in life. I had worked as a, a, a journalist for about 10 years and then went back to UCG as it was then with some burning questions like, you know, what is the meaning of life and what is it all for? Why are we on this earth? All of those questions that draw a lot of people to the social sciences and to philosophy. Um, and I certainly found many interesting answers, but uh, it wasn't really until I, I started practicing Buddhism that uh, I found really a great depth, a way of 
thinking through those questions, not necessarily finding answers, but thinking through the questions in a way that sort of sustained me and satisfied me and nourished me. Um, so uh, my interest in psychotherapy also came uh, as a result of my interest in, you know, in Buddhism, because Buddhism and psychotherapy go very well together. Um, but also at a particular stage of my life, I got into a kind of a human knotty situation, a difficult situation, which had, you know, was work related. Um, and I found a wonderful psychotherapist at that time who himself had done a training in Buddhist psychotherapy. So that opened another door for me. And suddenly it seemed all of those doors were wide open and I had to just keep walking through them. So that's the kind of background. Um, my, my, my Buddhist practice is, of course, a Zen practice. And maybe we could talk about that and the differences uh, as we go along. Um, but uh, so at some point in my academic career, when I was kind of settled into my academic career in NUIG, I began to think about integrating my interest in politics, international relations um, and the kind of questions that international relations theory throws up, questions about human rights, human dignity, solidarity, peace, justice at a global level, very big questions. I, I was trying to think about a way of integrating those questions into some kind of scholarly Buddhist account. Um, and I made an attempt there with an article which satisfied somewhat that scratched, allowed me scratch that itch. But the experience uh, after that, I had a sense that actually <clears throat> um, I was interested maybe in in trying something which which didn't necessarily speak just to a Buddhist, uh, or sorry, just to a, an academic audience. Um, but I had a very strong sense that the ideas that I'd been encountering through Zen Buddhism have enormous liberatory power for all of us as humans. Um, and I had a desire, maybe a little bit messianic, I don't know, <laughs> but a desire to somehow... Um, explore those ideas and bring them out a little bit to uh, a wider audience and also to use those ideas to address very pressing contemporary idea, uh, contemporary uh, contexts. And in particular, uh, you know, observing the kind of onward march of neoliberalism, um, it seemed to me that there was a very useful um dialogue to be had there uh, in relation to the uh, um, bringing Buddhist Buddhist thought to bear on uh, neoliberalism and in particular the neoliberal self and hence the book was born but that, that I mean that's a very crude shorthand way of introducing the book but it, it came out of a, you know a long perhaps a decade of thinking about these ideas <clears throat> I think that comes through very strongly in the book actually I leashed that you're somebody who has been thinking about these questions for, for a long time. And that also, I mean, I think it's important to mention that while the book will be very useful for academics and students who are studying, for example, issues like neoliberalism, it's actually for everybody to read. It's not, it's not written in a way that is meant to be exclusive and it's highly accessible while being quite profound in the kind of issues it's exploring as well. And so I think that's really important to say, to start that off. I suppose just maybe one of the things that strikes the reader kind of entering the book is you kind of early on in the pages of it, you refer to a particular conversation that you had with a graduate student. Um, and that graduate student was talking to you about her 
own anxieties and those of her friends and her sense of already being a loser or a failure in terms of contemporary society. And it's, a, it's quite a startling little, you know, part of the book. And it's troubling. And I think you mean it to be troubling. I think you want us to feel troubled by it. Because I suppose what you're suggesting, and I think we can talk, maybe you'd like to talk a little bit about this, is this has broader significance. This particular experience, this particular encounter you had with this young woman speaks to kind of like the state of the world that we now find ourselves in, in, in quite a useful way. Do you want to maybe elaborate on that connection? Sure, yeah. Um, so part of the context for that story and why it was so startling for me, and it was very troubling for me at the time, um, was that I was becoming increasingly aware with the students I was teaching in NUIG, mostly undergraduate students, most of my teaching was at an undergraduate level, but also postgraduate students, student level, um, was their difficulties in seeing any world other than the world that neoliberalism shapes for them or sets out to be the truth about the world. Um, they were finding it very difficult to find a ground on which to critique neoliberalism because, you know, I, I kept using the phrase to them that neoliberalism is the sea in which they swim every day and a fish cannot be aware of the element within which it swims. And they too, I felt, were finding it really hard to be aware of the element within which they move, which is neoliberalism. Um, <clears throat> but the uh, story you're talking about was a particular conversation I had with a, a, a graduate student. She was on one of the MA programmes I was teaching on. And she was, as far as I could see, and I had taught her uh, over one module at this point, um, she was a very bright, able, competent young student, like a lot of her colleagues, very, um, I would have said, you know, a great future ahead of her with lots of opportunities and possibilities. Um, very nimble, you know, with lots of different interests. And I was encouraging her to think in, in our conversation about doing a piece of work which would allow her link towards her future. You know, what would you like to write about and think about something that, might help you in your um, future career. And she sort of faltered a bit and and uh, uh, eventually kind of confessed very kind of modestly or quietly that she had spent an evening with her former undergraduate friends. They were all graduates of Trinity. Um, and they those that bunch of friends towards the end of the evening, probably with a little bit of alcohol, which loosened their tongues and made them a little bit more confident or willing to be confessional. They had confessed, each of them, that they were already feeling like they had failed. Uh, and they were all very young. They're all in their you know early 20s. But the reason they felt they had failed was not sort of the usual you know, anxiety that young people feel about finding a career path and finding the correct career, career path and being sure that it is the correct one for them and so on. They hadn't even begun on their career paths. But the reason they felt they were failures was because they had not become entrepreneurs yet. They hadn't become tech entrepreneurs. Um, they hadn't set up any kind of startup of any kind and startups were the thing at the time to be a startup entrepreneur was the thing. And they also, she said, hadn't become um, social entrepreneurs. So 
you know, they hadn't set up an organization that was going to uh, work with animals or, 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 or the environment or any of those more social areas. So they judged themselves at the age of 21, 22 to be failures, social and personal failures before they'd even begun their lives. And it really startled me <clears throat> because it seemed to indicate to me the degree and the extent to which uh, neoliberal values had been internalised by a particularly bright group of young people who had at this stage uh, you know, completed third level degrees. In most of them in, uh, you know, humanities or social sciences. So there would have been a good deal of critique of the social order in their studies. But still the degree of internaliz internalisation was such that they had judged themselves failures. And it, it sort of frightened me um, uh, because uh, it, it, it sort of revealed to me the depth to which neoliberalism had um, become internalised to the extent that its values were seen as their values and the values through which they judged themselves to be personal failures or personal successes mm. already. Yeah. I mean, it is something incredibly dispiriting <clears throat> about the idea that people embarking on adulthood are already judging themselves to have failed by the standards of the society. I mean, that's a real political kick up the backside, isn't it? Just, you know, for us to think about what kind of a world we're actually creating. Um, and I suppose one of the things that kind of struck me as I was reading the book is that you do seem to have a particular empathy for the kind of psychosocial and the economic binds that young people kind of find themselves in today. Um, the book isn't only about young people and only for young people, but was that, was that a kind of a conscious kind of thought in your head that... You know, I, I, I'm seeing young people here and I'm seeing the kind of world that they've inherited and the kind of demands it's, it's placing on them. Oh, very much so, uh, you know, very, very much so. I mean, I was surrounded, at, you know, as a lecturer in NUIG and I was a, a year coordinator for several years. So I was dealing with 19, 21 year olds, 18, 19, 20, 21 year olds for a very long time and really appreciated you know, having that kind of connection with them. I don't have children myself, so it is really um, important to have that connection with younger people. Um, but I, I think they're particularly vulnerable because, it, you know, being being growing up, growing into adulthood is a period of great vulnerability, is a period of great insecurity. Um, and I mean, that can continue you know, <laughs> right throughout one's life. But I think in particular, that period between leaving home, leaving secondary school, entering the adult world is a period of great anxiety and uncertainty. Questions about identity, belonging, role, purpose are very intense for, for young people. So they're quite vulnerable anyhow uh, in, in any culture, in any context and at any time. I think that's a very tricky time for young pe for people. Mm. Young adulthood is very tricky. Um but also they were all born, you know, pretty much their 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 childhood and their teenage years and their young adulthood coincided with the intensification of neoliberalism and with the intensification of social media and the Internet. So they in particular did not know any world outside the world of social media, the Internet and neoliberal values. And for all of those reasons, I felt well. The other, the other factors that I, you know, I'm a little bit older now. I don't, I'm not sure how old you are, Rosie, but I, 
I'm in my um, I'm in my 60s now. So, you know, I, I have a memory of a time before neoliberalism, when neoliberalism was a kind of a faint idea on the landscape. Um, so I have a memory of different kind of social values, political values, different kind of community values, different kind of questions, orientations. So I had something that I could dip into as a as a counterpoint or as a contrast or as an alternative. Whereas my feeling was, particularly, as I said at the outset of the interview, that younger people didn't have that ground on which to stand. Um, so it was quite difficult for them, even even as students of the social sciences, to actually think, hang on, is there is there another way? <laughs> you know, is there another world that we can... You know, is there another way of thinking about the world outside of neoliberal values? So for all of those reasons, um, the other thing is I, I also became quite um, uh, the older I as I got older, which is an inevitable process. Um, I was very taken by this idea of becoming a good ancestor. Um, the idea that uh, our task as older persons is to pass on a world that is good for those coming up behind us. This is the idea of being a good ancestor, to think not about our own futures and our own ageing years and our own, you know, moving into our last decades happily and contentedly, but thinking about what we're leaving behind. <clears throat> so I was also a little bit motivated by that idea, the importance of thinking about the generations that are coming after us. That's a really lovely idea. And I think one of the frustrations I have in terms of the way that young people are spoken about is that, you know, conventionally kind of represented as snowflakes and as being sort of, you know, fretful and anxious without the kind of contextualization of what they've inherited as a world. Do you know what I mean? You know, like that the world they've entered is an inheritance and that they are charged with navigating it without the kind of sort of like the, the kind of political and the kind of social context. So we grew up with or knew to a certain extent, even if it was being eroded at the time. So I find that very frustrating, that kind of constant antagonism towards younger adults and younger mm. people that seems mm. to be quite dominant in the media culture at the moment. Um, so I think that also makes it, this book a very refreshing read because it is acknowledging the kind of the uncertainty, the difficulty, the, the lack of ground beneath people's feet. And, you know, you know, I'm trying to understand where that came from and situated. Um, I suppose as we've, as we've kind of, already mentioned that kind of like, I suppose there are key three themes that are, are, are running through the book. One is neoliberalism, one is Buddhism, and one is therapy culture. And you're kind of talking and thinking through how they interlock with each other. And, you know, so we look at each one in turn. Um, and I suppose in terms of your, like people I think are very familiar with the kind of concept of neoliberalism now, even if they don't exactly always know what it is or how it how is it different from capitalism or how is it different from other forms of capitalism? But, but the word itself is pretty familiar, I think, um, even though there's a lot of debate about whether we should be using the word neoliberalism at all. But we can talk about that some other day. You know, you know, but I think that what you're doing here is you're not really getting into what is the policy program, what's the economic program that's associated with neoliberalism. So you're not like deconstructing Hayek or Friedman or people like that to figure out what they thought about the free market. That's not where you're at. What I think you're doing is actually looking at what neoliberalism does and what neoliberalism does to us. And that what I one of the kind of really valuable and important kind of insights of the book is that it shapes what it is to be human and it shapes our understanding of what it is to be human. Um, so that the book is called Self 
because neoliberalism works upon the self and it works through the self. Is, is that right? Is that what you sense the kind of like your take on neoliberalism is really focused on this notion of the work it does upon ourselves and how we understand our humanity? Yes, that's a very good, very good summary. So thank you for that, Rosie. <laughs> You've saved me a bit of work, a bit of bother there. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm interested in the psychosocial aspects of, of self. And, and one way in which I, I, I think about it is that, yeah, there's a huge debate about what exactly is neoliberalism. I like to keep these debates quite simple because I'm, you know, I, I you know, this is a this is a book for a general reader and general readers are not interested in those kind of academic debates. They are important, but, you know, I think we can also move through them, you know, with, with lightly. Um, so neoliberalism is kind of late capitalism, the current condition, the current order. Uh, there are things about it that are quite particular. I, I've no doubt about that. And the one thing that's quite particular that makes neoliberalism different from capitalism in its other formations is its... Uh, colonization of the self, colonization of the psyche, of our consciousness, of our awareness. And it's its need to produce a particular kind of self, particular kind of subject or human. And if we think about it, one phrase that I sometimes use to describe this is that um, there, it, there is a kind of an out there of neoliberalism, however you describe it, the rolling back of the state, the elevation of entrepreneurialism, um, the economization of every sphere of life and so on and so on and so on. Um, and that sort of political economy requires a certain kind of an, an in here, a certain kind of human to meet that new order. So it's not just capitalism, you know, more capitalism or with a different flavor. It, it, it has a particular quality and a particular feel um, I mean, somebody, somebody I read, I can't recall who apologies to the person said that the, you know, the individual, that they are, our minds or our psyches are the last, were the, the last terrain um, available to capitalism to colonize. Wow. <clears throat> and, and I think in a way, you know, what I'm, what the book is trying to capture is that process by looking at the outcome. The outcome is the neoliberal subject. Okay. That's really, really useful. And in the book, you present an extremely helpful acronym, C-A-R-R-P-P, -P, so CARP. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce it, but I, and I'm going to be using it with students. So I think it's a really fantastic resource. And in that acronym, you're basically those, each of those letters signifies, you know, six states of being or markers of the neoliberal subject or identity. Would you tell us a little bit more about that acronym, like how you came up with it and what mm -hmm. each of those letters signifies in terms of a marker of neoliberalism? Yes, I, I like this double Spanish R, CARP. That's very nice. <laughs> Thank you, CARP. Um, I spent a long time reading. There is a big body of literature. Once I dived into this topic, I discovered, gosh, this is fantastic. Others have been here before me, <laughs> This is, which is wonderful. I didn't have to invent it myself. So I spent a long time reading, particularly uh, psychology, social psychology, sociology, um, social policy, um, probably a couple of other areas as well. It, people identifying the uh, the nature of the human subject under conditions of neoliberalism. And, I, you know, at, at some point I had pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of notes and all kinds of different characteristics, qualities, behaviour, modes of behaviour, states of mind. And it was becoming completely unwieldy. 
And I thought, um, I have to reduce it. I have to make it kind of legible and understandable to me and to a reader. And in some ways, some of the qualities or the markers, yeah, I, I like the idea of calling them markers of neoliberalism. So they're, they're kind of markers that are on us, upon us or inside us, which mark us out as neoliberal subjects. Many of them are quite similar. Uh, they're sort of refined versions of one or another. But right across all of this literature uh, were some really common themes. So I tended to focus on the kind of common themes which could be unpacked if if you wanted to unpack them even further, you could kind of refine them a little bit more and unpack any of those a little bit further. Um, and then furthermore, it seemed to me that two of these markers, which are the first two that the neoliberal subject is inherently or essentially competitive and is inherently or essential autonomous, these two, and I can say a little bit more about those in a moment, but that these two are the sine qua non or the necessary framework for the neoliberal subject. So what that means is that um, to survive uh, in times of neoliberalism or to thrive, perhaps, or to be successful in times of neoliberalism, <clears throat> one has to believe that human beings are essentially a necessary competitive, that this is the natural state of being for humans, is to be competitive. So... Um, uh, uh, evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology would provide lots of evidence for that. Um, and it is essentially a Darwinian worldview. Now, of course, we know there's lots of evidence to the contrary as well, but that tends to get occluded. Uh, but competitiveness is uh, um, uh, necessary. So a, a neoliberal subject has to believe him or herself to be necessarily in competition with others for everything, for all resources. And if we think about that as an inhere of neoliberalism, it matches or fits or slots nicely into a critical component of the out there of neoliberalism, which is that the mar market forces or the marketplace, or let's say market forces are the mechanism for distributing all resources, all wealth um, in, in the social order and the political order. And market forces are distributed, you know, the marketplace works through competition. So it's a perfect match between the in here and the out there of neoliberalism and the human being. Autonomy is critical also because, and in a sense, this is really what the book is about more than anything else, is that neoliberalism has extracted the social from, from the self. Because under conditions of neoliberalism, the individual is autonomous from others. The, in, the individual self comes before society or sociality. That comes afterwards. So we have to see ourselves as being autonomous from others, not reliant on others, because we are, our relationship with others is primarily one of competition. It can be friendly competition, um, but it's still competition. So in order for that kind of competitiveness to kind of function well or to work well, it has to be matched with this idea of autonomy, that we are autonomous beings. We are individual. We are isolated individuals within our within our bodies uh, without, uh, you know, we can survive and we do survive without relationships with others. OK, so, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, so they're they're the two base foundational kind of precepts, I suppose, of the neo of neoliberal philosophy and thinking. And then they feed the need for us to be responsible. They feed a need for us to be positive. They feel a need for us to, um, I suppose, sort of like regard ourselves as constantly upbeat and available. And resilient is another one that you kind of use. So I think that's what's fantastic about that acronym is the way that it sort of like identifies all of those elements as important but shows how they speak back to what's mm. going on kind of within the broader political and economic domain, um, which is really, really useful, I think. Um, you, one of your chapters is titled, the, it's, a, it's a brilliant title, actually, um, The Self as Anxious Monad Chapped in the, in the Therapy Culture. So in, doing, in, in tightening it in that way, you're kind of bringing on, I suppose, that notion of, of, of CARP, aren't you? You're bringing on the idea of like, Okay, we need to see ourselves as um, competitive and autonomous and resilient and positive, but actually, maybe we're not really. Maybe there's something not quite fitting there or not quite working. And I think what you do in that chapter is you kind of really kind of kind of tap in to that sort of the kind of boosterism of neoliberalism versus the sort of like the uncertainties of like what it really is like to be in the kind of world that we're in. And, and, and one of the key elements there is this idea of the therapy culture, okay? So I think what you're saying is that there's a trap of therapy culture, that therapy culture kind of permeates society and it, it, it feeds this, these neoliberal ideas. Not all therapy does that, but this therapy culture does that. So would you mind maybe talking a little bit more about like this kind of therapy culture and how that kind of plays up or plays along with those kinds of tendencies or markers of neoliberalism that we've been talking about? Yeah, um, maybe uh, uh, this chapter surprised me in the sense that I wasn't expecting to to write this chapter when I had an initial kind of notion of the draft of the book. But as I was going along, it seemed to me that I needed to give a, a bit greater depth to how these markers come to be dominant in the culture and how we come to internalise them and believe them to be the truth about what it means to be human. Um, and I mean, you know, there are many different ways, but one of the ways which seem to me to be most powerful, uh, no, I, I, I won't say most powerful, extremely powerful, uh, because I think um, uh, uh, social media itself and technology and the internet itself is also really powerful. And I don't deal with that very much in the book, mostly because other people have written about that very well. <clears throat> but I was, as I was sort of writing the early chapters of the book and thinking and reading, so this is maybe five, six years ago, I was also becoming very aware. I'm a radio listener. I listen a lot yeah. to the radio. I was becoming aware of a certain kind of narrative that was continuously <laughs> Uh, on the radio and in media, print media, I, I uh, also um, read print media. Um, and it seemed to me, I was thinking, gosh, there's something you know, there's something strange here, because on the one hand, neoliberalism is requiring us to be tough, resilient, responsibilized, competitive, autonomous, uh, go-getting, um, uh, self-serving, driven, and so on, all of that. And on the other hand, we're listening to this continuous narrative, which is one of vulnerability, um, fragility, uh, um, emotional breakdown, 
people speaking about their difficulties with addiction and 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 abuse and so on. I, I was thinking, well, there's something strange here, you know. Uh, it, uh, and and then I again came across this literature on therapy culture. <clears throat> so maybe. So before I say what therapy culture is, could I just say, Rosie, that I, I, I'm really um, keen to make it clear that the critique is not of therapy. It's not of psychotherapy or counselling or psychotherapy, although it can include that. But the critique of this thing called therapy culture is of the way in which ideas from within therapy have kind of become, have made their way out into popular culture mm outside of the really important relationship between the therapist and the client. So that grounding relationship and that holding and that grounding environment and that context and all the ethical understandings of the psychotherapeutic relationship are not present in therapy culture. So it's something quite loose and wild and unmediated. Playing with our emotional lives and our emotional selves, but without that kind of grounding ethical environment. So, um, it, you know, these are two quite different things. Mm -hmm. So ideas from within therapy make their way into popular culture. And so what I was listening to was, you know, people's stories. It became almost obligatory if you were being interviewed about anything, if you'd written a book or written a poem or become famous for one thing or another. You had to have some personal backstory of some personal tragedy um, and that confessional um, um, expectation was always there. Uh, and, I, I, you know, I was hearing radio journalists in particular ceaselessly asking these questions, you know, that must have been very emotional for you. Tell us how was that? And the story would be told. So um, when I started to listen to these very carefully and started to read and, you know, identify this literature and therapy culture, it became clear that what was going on, in fact, was a replication or a bedding down or a deepening of neoliberal values <clears throat> through this thing called therapy culture. Because the uh, stories largely revolved around overcoming difficulties, whatever the difficulties were, through personal effort. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm very often some kind of cognitive behavioural therapy or um, uh, emphasising self-esteem, resilience, autonomy. Um, again, so again, what they were, now not all, and I, I don't want to be dismissive of, of the importance of, um, you know, hearing human stories and human drama and stories of, for instance, grief and loss. That, that's all really important for all of us to hear those stories. But the way in which they were conducted fitted beautifully in with neoliberal values, which is that the solution to these problems was always in your own head. Okay, how you thought about the world and how you thought about yourself as a human being in relation to the world. The solution was always self-esteem, valuing of the self, changing how you think, um, becoming more positive. So. The, the long hand of something that's called positive psychology was all over these all over these discussions. The most important thing was to always remain positive, mm -hmm. which means, in a sense, a denial of uh, the social and denial of the of the of the human. I made a bit of a leap there, I know, but we can come back to it if you wish. Um, 
So I began to understand then these discussions uh, and interviews and newspaper stories and uh, and so on, features and so on, as actually replicating and bedding down the values of uh, neoliberalism and co- contributing to the creation of neoliberal selfhood. Yes, I think I think that's really interesting because I think, for example, I had a had a sense of like kind of an ongoing kind of like refrain in Irish society. For example, we need to talk more about mental health. You know, that might be one of the kind. You know, and and you would, but what was happening was there were many many conversations in media about mental health, but they were all framed in a particular way. And there is a sort of like notion of like there was a crisis, there was a heroic struggle. And then there was the achievement of success at the end of it. That's going to seem to be the kind of dominant narrative. And that if you only had the wherewithal to find it in yourself, just you know, you could you could rescue yourself from the kind of pain that you were in. So, and the kind of, I mean, I'm very attracted to kind of critical theory and I find it consoling. I kind of, kind of like the kind of critique consoling sometimes because it is an acknowledgement about the messiness and the contradictoriness of the world that we're actually, you know, in. Whereas I found with this kind of heroic neoliberal narrative, that that's pushed aside because there has to be like this end point of future success. And I, I think your account of the book really, really speaks really clearly and well about how that therapy culture, which is not about a dismissal of therapy itself, you know, which is necessary and holds people in crisis and, you know, can be absolutely essential. But this is a sort of a, a tra- you know, a kind of a smuggling in of aspects of therapy into the kind of into the media sphere and the cultural sphere in not helpful sort of ways, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, we like, as humans, we like easy solutions. <laughs> we like easy answers. And we like answers that maybe don't trouble us too much um, to have to change what we're doing. And one of the things that we can, one of the ways we can think about that, and that's very nicely put, Rosie, the way you described it there, that arc, um, the heroic arc, uh, but one of the ways we can think about this is there's a writer called David Smale, who I quote quite a bit in the book, who was um, an English uh, psychiatrist, I think, but psychotherapist anyway, uh, working in the NHS and also teaching um, in a university during the Thatcher era in the 1980s. Mm. And he began to see coming into his rooms and and in the wider social order um, <clears throat> A lot of mental distress, which was caused by um, Thatcherite policies and their impact on community, community life and workplaces and so on. So in other words, it's the beginning of neoliberalism. Mm. So his work I found really helpful because writing in the 1980s, he was anticipating what we were seeing everywhere now, really. But he makes the case that what he was seeing was the way in which social exploitation was being represented as personal breakdown or personal failure. That if you're struggling in the workplace or struggling in the social order or struggling to find a job or to find a meaning like those young students were, um, rather than pointing at social causes or economic causes or political causes, the fingers are pointed at personal breakdown or personal failure. And the solution is, as you say, as you as you put it, I, I can't remember what words you use, but a personal struggle, a heroic personal individual struggle to overcome these difficulties. And the argument was that, you know, and positive psychology very much is based on this idea that 
whatever your problem is, it's it's in your mind primarily. And the solution, therefore, is in your mind, not in the social order. So the this way of thinking about human um, difficulties responsibilizes all of us to take charge of our own fortunes, even when we can't, even when we struggle against, you know, class inequality or, uh, or you know, gender discrimination or um, geographical uh, discrimination. Um, yet we are made to feel responsibilized for our own fortunes, uh, particularly when particularly when we can't uh, actually address the structural causes of those misfortunes. Yeah, I mean, it's what you're, what you're saying there about David Smale in terms of anticipating a kind of an issue that was kind of coming down the tracks. But in the book, you talk about in neoliberal, neoliberal liberal society how we're on the one hand, we're kind of impinged upon and, and <coughs> abandoned. Do you know what I mean? that, that's mm. the kind of relationship we have with society. So there's an expectation that we need to be autonomous to do it for ourselves, to look after ourselves. But on the other hand, there's this kind of relentless kind of demands in us to be certain kind of ways. And you you suggest that there is a connection between those experiences and like problems like social phobia and anxiety, which do seem to be on the rise in the current historical moment. Um, so did you like so you are making that connection, aren't you, between the sort of like the kind of the way that what neoliberalism does to us in terms of the expectations and the abandonment and these real psychosocial and effective experiences. Yes, I am making the case. And again, I draw on some others who've written in this area because I don't have the um, sort of academic background to do that kind of research myself or, or, or make those kind of arguments myself. Um, but take, for instance, this idea of being impinged upon and then being abandoned. Um, so in most workplaces, through technology, we are having to do tasks, each of us individually, which at a different point would, would have been done by perhaps a team of people or for which there would have been a team of people around you supporting you to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so the expectation is that we have to be able to master and it is very much about a mastering different kinds of skills to deliver on um, certain tasks on our own. And when something goes wrong, which invariably it does, or when you forget your security, your, your password, or you forget the security code um, and you can't get access to the program or you can't get access to mm-hmm. whatever it is you need. It creates a terrible, I mean, I think we've all experienced it. It creates a terrible dread. I mean, you know, the, your world can collapse because you're now looking at a screen. There's nobody to help you. Um, you may be lucky if you get sent a sheet of frequently asked questions Um or you may get a, a helpline number to ring and that helpline will give you a series of 10 options. And then you go, you know, you go, you know, everybody has stories like this, mm-hmm. not just in workplaces, but also in in terms of booking tickets or trying to organize a holiday or, or whatever. All of the everyday mundane tasks. So these kind of fields of human activity, which previously were populated by lots of individuals and individuals who would talk and there would be all of we used to call we used to talk about in in the. Um, in sociology, they used to talk about long ago something called phatic conversations, which are the kind of conversations you have when you're standing in a queue or, or waiting at a bus stop or uh, waiting to enter something. And there's the chat and it's about weather and they could be a little bit tedious, 
But they're also necessary for us as humans. We're sparking off another person. We don't feel alone any longer. There can often be important exchange of information. We feel good about those fatic conversations. They actually are like uh, the oil that, that keep us functioning. But in the neoliberal world, all of that is gone or much of that is gone. So it creates a terrible sense of um, anxiety and aloneness. And it's not a coincidence, I think, that now, um, you know, policymakers are seriously thinking about the problem of loneliness as, as a social problem, which has health dimensions and which has economic dimensions, mental health and physical health, and also has political dimensions, um, a fragmented society of people who are feeling quite isolated, individualized, autonomous and lonely is a society which is very open to political manipulation um, because that sense of communal bonding is gone. So um, to come back to your question then about uh, the relationship between that kind of world and um, contemporary conditions, pathologies such as um, social anxiety, general anxiety disorder, in some ways what I'm saying is what if all of these conditions are not individual pathologies, a function of some kind of individual failure or individual lack, but actually are uh, a function of the kind of neoliberal social order where we are both impinged upon and then abandoned in our impingement? Mm -hmm. And I think they are, you know, I, I think it's not a coincidence it's not just that we now understand something called social anxiety and we can now identify it and we have the markers for it and people are skilled in, in, in identifying it. I think it is a function of the social order. So in some ways, what we're seeing, and it's particularly the case amongst young people, is a manifestation of societal or societal breakdown, if you like. So, you know, the, it is really embedded in their, in their bodies and in their psyches. They are really carrying that burden. Thank you. That's really, really useful and, and troubling, troubling account. I suppose one of the features of the, the series that the book is part of, Shirak, is that there's also an emphasis on alternative ways of thinking, hopeful currents. And you bring that to the series through your exposition of Buddhist ideas and your exploration of how they might help us to sort of experience and see the world in different kinds of ways. And so I think we'll maybe talk a little bit about those ideas, if that's OK. I've, I'm going to go carefully because I don't know the terrain so well, but, but you'll, you'll guide us through it. And I suppose first thing as a starting point in terms of um, getting our heads around the ideas you're talking about, is it important to acknowledge that there are different currents within Buddhism? It isn't just one, one single entity. Do you mind maybe just briefly even just outlining some of the kind of different shades of thinking in Buddhism or schools of thought? You identify, for example, with Zen Buddhism, I think. Is, is that mm -hmm. right? Yeah, my, my practice is uh, a Zen Buddhist practice. Um, and maybe I think the easiest way to think about this is that um, there are three different dominant schools of Buddhism. One is Zen, which emerged from, as Buddhism moved north from India through China and Japan. Um, and the Zen that I encountered was very much encountered was, is Western Zen. So again, it, ha it has a flavour of its own, but it, it, it comes from within that Zen tradition. 
the other two main schools are um, the kind of Tibetan, Northern Asian tradition. Uh, and then the uh, what's considered to be classical Buddhism, which is Theravada Buddhism, which you find still predominantly in South Asia, Cambodia, Thailand, uh, Sri Lanka and so on. So those are the three schools of Buddhism. They all share what are called the, the, the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, the person, the historical figure known as the Buddha. And they uh, are very similar. You know, they share a lot, but there are also there are also differences. And most of the differences can be explained by what the sets of ideas picked up as they moved through the different cultures what they met and the kind of syncretic um, effect of meeting different cultures. Mm -hmm. So the Zen that I encountered um, made its way to Europe and to the US and encountered the whole counterculture movement of the 1970s, 60s and 70s. Um, So Western Zen um, has a strong orientation towards um, social activism, social engagement. Um, for instance, in the tradition that I'm part of, both men and women are treated with, there's no question of different treatments. Uh, mm-hmm. And in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, so um, the ordination is uh, those who take, you know, that, that stage of ordination are considered priests, whether they're men or women. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so that's the tradition within which I sit. It's the it's Zen, uh, West sort of a Western Zen. I mean, it, it, some people might even consider it to be quite you know highly secular. It's a highly secular understanding of Zen, um, but it is its roots go back to Japan and it draws primarily on uh, a medieval Buddhist Zen Buddhist scholar called Dogen. His name is Ehe Dogen. Uh, and he has lots and lots of writings and his work comes up over and over and over again. And people read and reread Dogen's work endlessly. Fantastic. That's really, really helpful. Um, so so in the in the context of the book, there's um, there's a lovely section and it's quite comical and kind of moving at the same time where you talk about um, a kind of a realization you came to kind of courtesy of David Hume philosophy. You were thinking about tomatoes and the nature of tomatoes and, and it was about really this notion that you yourself didn't have a fixed identity or a fixed essence or a core. And so that meant thinking through about how, if you stripped away bits of yourself, you know, where you were from, your kind of music, you liked your clothes, et cetera, et cetera, all these interests you might have, but if you took them all away, what was left and in your, in your discussion, you find that there's, there isn't anything essentially there. There is no single core that you can retreat back to. And you talk about how that was a kind of an alarming and a kind of scary sort of encounter. But also then you encounter that idea subsequently, you know, through experiencing kind of Buddhist thought and, and, and ideas. And it becomes less scary, actually. It becomes kind of more liberation, liberatory in its potential. And so that kind of idea is this kind of, and you bring to kind of bear in the book, the kind of the concept of anatta or non-self. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, And for you, this is a profound insight about who we are as people in the world. And that on the one hand, it is scary and it is, you know, disturbing potentially, but it also has this kind of liberatory and liberation of potential. Do you mind talking us through those ideas, please? 
Yeah, I won't tell you the story of the tomato again. We, we let that be. But yes, I, I had a discovery before I had a Buddhist practice that I didn't exist <laughs> uh, as a philosophy student. And maybe this is why some people don't like. Um, um, I could remember the uh, Irish Defence Forces used to all kept come to UCG to do their degree, all the, all the uh, cadets, all the officer class. That. And it was said at the time, and I don't know if it's true, but it was said at the time that the only subject they could not study was philosophy. <laughs> so um, I, I don't know if that's true. I think it was. None of them ever showed up in their uniforms in philosophy class. But but as a result of that experience through um, uh, uh, David Hume, the Enlightenment philosopher, I came to experience myself as being essentially empty, by which I meant I had no essence. I could not find any core in myself. Mm. In other words, now I wasn't a Christian or a Catholic, so I wasn't troubled by that idea from a religious point of view. But I still had some notion that, well, surely there's something. Maybe it's a soul. Maybe it's a kind of a secular soul. Maybe it's a soul that doesn't have a God around. Or, But there must be something there that, you know, is at the centre of my being that kind of holds me together um, and that is particular and unique and precious to me. And, you know, people were used to talk a lot about, do people still talk about going to find themselves? I don't know. But but in those days, people would say they were going to go to Connemara to find themselves or go to India to find themselves, based on some idea that there was some essential core at their being that they couldn't quite see, but was there. So I discovered that I had no such core at my being. And it was, as you say, Rosie, and as I say in the book, extremely, <coughs> excuse me, extre- extremely disturbing. <coughs> excuse me. Um, it was extremely disturbing at the time. And I felt I was the only person who didn't exist. And I couldn't talk to anybody about it because nobody else seemed to be bothered by this fact that they didn't exist. So I kept it entirely to myself until I discovered Zen Buddhism. And then I pretty quickly discovered, hang on, this is, um, in, in the Buddhist tradition, this is the sort of first step to human liberation. Um, but of course, when I had discovered that I didn't exist, as in there was no essence to myself, no permanent, eternal, stable being at the core of my, you know, entity at the core of my being, I did it without all of the surrounding kind of, um, cosmology of of Buddhism, so it was it was a nihilistic uh, discovery, and it was frightening and and, and not pleasant. Um, in a Buddhist context, the idea of non-self, anatta, or emptiness of self, is sometimes the term that's used. Does not exist as a concept. It's it's hard to even speak about it separate from the concept of dependent origination. So. Buddhism and all forms of Buddhism say this, and it's particularly strong in the Zen tradition. Uh, Buddhism says, yes, there is no eternal abiding core at the the centre of each of us as humans. But we are in every moment continuously made up of every single uh, of the entire world around us, past, future, you know, uh, conscious, unconscious the physical world, the the human world, the the world of emotions, the world of all the senses, and so on. We are we are a process, basically, mm-hmm. continuously changing, and full of everything else in every moment. 
So it's actually an extremely rich and abundant and liberating way, I think, mm. of thinking about what it means to be a human. Because we are not obliged to be fixated on finding and defending that self that's unique mm -hmm. to me, belongs to me, is mine only. And we don't have to worry about, we don't have to um, experience the existential anxiety that I went through about, you know, help, I don't exist. Rather, it's wonderful, I don't exist. I don't have to worry about it. I'm liberated from my obsession with myself as a permanent, eternal being. Because I am. Process. In, in a process. And I'm also, and like this idea of dependent origination. So I am in the world with other people in the world. Do you know what I mean? You know, like it is relational. It is material. We are, you know what I mean? There are connections and possibilities that come through that as well. So, you know, I may not have an essence, neither does anybody else, but all of us together constitute a kind of a social sphere of all kinds of possibility. I, I assume that's kind of where the liberation kind of yes. runs through. Yes, we are irreducibly social is the is is the term that's used in Buddhism to describe it. We we cannot we cannot separate ourselves. So even the language starts to get difficult now because when mm -hmm. I say separate ourselves, what does that mean if there isn't a you know, mm -hmm. but we cannot be uh separate from the sociability of all other beings in any moment. Mm -hmm. So our being, our essential being, no, we can't even use that word anyways, but our our um The nature of being, the ground of being is the term that's used in Buddhism. The ground of being is social. Mm -hmm. And this is why I felt <clears throat> a Buddhist account of the self was a really beautiful and powerful antidote to a neoliberal account of the self. Because in as much as the neoliberal account of the self extracts the social, strips away the social, denies the social in the self, Buddhism says, you know, it, it is impossible to be without the social. I mean, the, you know, our brains, for instance, are the most social of all of our organs. Our brains cannot form or develop from moment of birth and even before birth without interaction and relationship with others. Not just the mother in the womb, but also, you know, the sounds around the womb, the, the oxygen, the air, what the mother eats. And then after birth, everything that that being meets shapes and forms the brain and the, and, and, the, and the human subject, the baby and then the child and so on, the teenager. So it is a completely different uh, understanding of the self. Um, and it's, uh, in, sometimes I think it's the most difficult aspect of Buddhism for people in the West to grasp. Um, but it, it really is the essence of liberation, in, mm -hmm. in my view. It is, it is the ground of our liberation. Yeah, and it's, and, it, and it's such a contrast to kind of like some of the kind of more stereotypical kind of representations of Buddhism. You know, people sort of often talk about it as if it's a withdrawal, the great kind of withdrawal, or it's the, the kind of renunciation of the mundane world around you to kind of enter some kind of spiritual plane. And, and I think for you, that's absolutely the opposite of that. That's, you know, you know that's exactly what it isn't. Yes. Um, and, 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 and you write about this in the book, that how your own kind of politics, which is you know, informed by kind of socialist, feminist, environmentalist ideas. Do you mean, you know, like how there's a great complementarity between that Zen, those Zen Buddhist ideas and that kind of politics? Do you want to even say something about that? Yeah, um, <clears throat> they're all, all very big ideas. And I suppose I don't want to, you know, yeah, I'll say, yeah. For me, as a Zen Buddhist who's also, you know, committed to the broad 
tradition of socialist ideals of equality, justice, and also to the broad <laughs> tradition of feminist ideas, uh, and also increasingly alarmed by the need for environmental um, uh, an environmental orientation. Um, the tr- you know Buddhism for me is an invitation to dive deeply into the world because th- that is where our liberation is found. It is not about separating from the world. It's not about transcending the world. And you're right. I think this is the um, one of the misconceptions about about Buddhism in the West. Um, however, and there is always a big however here. Um, in diving deeply into the world, we also must be we must also bring a heightened awareness of uh, an internal kind of the internal process. Um, no, let me, I'll, I'll, I'll try and rephrase that. Um, it's not just, the invitation is not just to throw ourselves into, let's say, activism. Mm-hmm. But the invitation is to throw ourselves into activism while bringing a really heightened awareness about how we are in that process as individuals, what we are bringing to that process as individuals, mm-hmm. what's in my mind as I approach mm-hmm. um, that dive into the world. Because the uh, um, the boundary between myself and that world is, is, is non-existent. But it, it begins with me. My dive begins with me into the world. So I have to be fully aware of what I'm doing when I'm diving into the world. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I have to be fully aware of what my values are, what my <clears throat> what my goals are, what my attitude is in this moment. Am I bringing anger into this room, you know, of feminists or environmentalists? Am I bringing uh, ignorance? Am I bringing uh, some old resentment, you know? So it's not just a blind diving in. It requires this continuous um, uh, recognition of the connection between me and the world around me and what I bring to the world around me in any moment. So hence, um, Zen Buddhism, like all forms of Buddhism, emphasizes the necessity of some kind of mindful practice, some kind of meditation practice in which you bring a very systematic inquiry to what you're doing in your head the whole time. Mm-hmm. You know, how you are making boundaries or or breaking through boundaries, how you are putting up resistance or seeking to undo resistance, how you are seeking to bring some kind of reparation or how you are seeking actually to kind of stir the shit a bit more and make things a bit more difficult. So um, and this, in a sense, I think is what marks out, let's say, a Buddhist orientated social activism from other forms of social activism with which it would share, you know, pretty much everything mm-hmm. else, common goals about social social inclusion, equality, justice, um, environmental justice and so on. But there is a requirement to be to continuously inquire into the nature of nature of self in that process. In in one of the other podcasts, I've been speaking to Michael Cronin and we've been talking about the idea. This is kind of a slight sidebar, but if you can bear with me for a second. And we've been talking a little bit about the concept of identity politics and that came up. And one of the discussion was about how much of it, not all, but some, some, there's fant- obviously there's a huge liberation potential in, in identity politics, but some aspects of it can get mired in resentment and resentment. And it strikes me in terms of the kind of parallel of what you're talking about there, that like having that kind of consciousness of 
sort of affective, the kind of emotional way we engage, you know, you know, in politics, understanding what we're bringing to it in terms of judgments and ethics and kind of, you know, and values is hugely important. I mean, he's not talking necessarily about kind of like Zen Buddhist ideas, but I think there's a crucial element of overlap there between what you're saying, Jimmy, you know, in terms of understanding, it's not just about the issues that you're campaigning around, but it's kind of a whole ethic of engagement and how we engage as activists. I think that maybe you're talking about there. Is that right? Yeah. Um, a, a, a Zen Buddhist activism would always emphasize the process rather than the mm. outcome. Um, and in fact, I think would probably be willing to has to be willing to let go of outcome as goal in favor of uh, process okay. relationships in process. Um, and that's not done for strategic reasons. It's done because in the process of engaging with this issue, the most important thing is these relationships, not increasing human suffering even if it means just you know the suffering of the person who i whose views i dislike intensely and i and i wish she would just be silenced and leave the room and you know um so it 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 brings it's it's pretty uh um you could say it's highly ethical in that sense mm -hmm. but it's a contextual ethics mm -hmm. uh because a buddhist practice is founded on um the idea of reducing human suffering mm -hmm. Um, there's something called the Four Noble Truths, which is usually where most students of Buddhism will begin. And they, you know, and the first truth is to 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 be human is to suffer. Um, and that I think is also a very liberating start point. It's recognition mm -hmm. that humans are really messy and life is very painful, uh, can be very painful. It's full of joy, uh, but it it can also be very painful. Uh, to be born is to suffer. To grow up is to suffer. Uh, uh, there, every day we experience small losses and uh, abandonments and griefs and so on. And that is what it means to be a human. Mm -hmm. um, so the commitment of, a, of a, a Buddhist practitioner is primarily to reduce the quantum, if you like, of human suffering, even if that is an absolutely an impossible, an impossible task. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the orientation of Zen Buddhist activism is more towards that um, it's it's not um, yes saving the planet is, would be a very good thing, but in saving the planet uh, we create more enemies and um, um, uh, more harm. You know, or in trying to save the planet, as we move towards saving the planet, we create more enemies and more harm and more suffering for people. Then there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so. Uh, I think I've kind of lost my train of thought there, Rosie. You could you could prompt me back to where where no, we were at the beginning. No, that you haven't. That's no, that's really clear. And I think that what's what's probably worth asserting at this point is that you know, in the book, you're not saying that you know, you know, in Buddhist societies things are perfect or they always get this right. In fact, quite the contrary. You you talk a little bit about your experiences of being in Cambodia. And how, you know, an ostensibly Buddhist country, which is, you know, which is suffused with Buddhist culture, you know, we, you know, there's, there's a genocide, you know, like was practiced, you mean, so, you know, it can go disastrously wrong. But in your experiences there as well, you also 
found really kind of fascinating and kind of powerful illustrations of Buddhist ideas in practice. Do you know what I mean? And that I think they've really shaped perhaps even what you've been talking about there. They've probably helped to shape that kind of philosophy around action and activism and being an actor in the world in a very profound way. Do you want to talk a little bit about that experience in Cambodia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Rosie, for that nice connection to the Cambodian chapter because I include that it felt to me to be really important to not kind of... um, produce this uh, another version of Orientalism, you know, that Mm -hmm. everything that comes out of Asia is perfect and every Buddhist is a saint. And um, if I could just become a Buddhist, then I'd be fine. Everything would be great. And I could, you know, my my world, I would be really happy and the world would be would be perfect thereafter. Um, So I think it's really important to recognize that Buddhist ideas, like every set of ideas, are are subject to being hijacked or manipulated or exploited. but that does not mean that does not reduce their power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's true of all sorts of ideas. Um, so uh, I, I was doing a research project, which wasn't very successful, actually. But anyhow, um, it was successful in that it allowed me to think through certain things. But uh, my project was on peacework, uh, Buddhist peacework in post-genocidal Cambodia. So I was interested in talking to individuals who were peace activists community activists, um, people involved in community education and so on, um, community development, who were inspired by Buddhist ideas. Because the shocking, really shocking thing about the Cambodian genocide between 1975 and 79, when about a quarter of the population was killed by, um, you know, Cambodians, a a group of Cambodians, the Khmer Rouge took power after Mm -hmm war and a coup in the midst of a war uh, and almost immediately as in literally within hours of taking power began killing their own people there was what's called an auto genocide and um it happened under the protectorate basically of of china um and as the rest of the world turned away because the us was obsessed with the vietnam war at the time and so on so it, you know it happened in with the kind of a a certain kind of a connivance of the West mm-hmm. and of China. But nonetheless, what was really shocking is that Cambodia, as a thoroughly Buddhist country, it had not gone through any kind of modernization process at all. So there was no separation between um, the Sangha or the, or the kind of Buddhist institutions and the social order. There was no separation at all. The culture, you know, the politics, the community processes, village life and so on, were entirely embedded in um, the institutions of, of Buddhism. So the question, of course, is how could this happen? You know, how could, how could uh, a, a Buddhist country um, engage in autogenocide, mm. killing half, a qu- uh, almost a quarter of the population? So there's a whole, you know, there's a whole literature on that. And I don't think we need to be too bothered with that, except to say that um, the Khmer Rouge did indeed use some ideas, some Buddhist ideas, to rationalise the killing. So, for instance, the idea of emptiness or non-self, which we talked about a few moments ago, was put to work by the Khmer Rouge, the genocidaire, very successfully to encourage people to kill others. Because if there's nobody to kill, if there's nobody there, well, then there's no killing. OK, so it's OK. And they'll get, you know, they'll... You're not really killing anything. There's nothing there. So these ideas can be used 
in all kinds of ways. Now, that's pretty extreme, but it's mm-hmm. really important to. So it was like a, a pretty extreme warning against any forms of Orientalism. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, as you say, I also discovered in Cambodia the ways in which people, uh, contemporary peace workers, are using these very old ideas that are very culturally embedded, although probably somewhat destroyed by the Khmer Rouge regime and decades of war. They're still managing to use these ideas to create a kind of um, a social order in which there can be some reparation, some repair of the of the tradition of violent conflict. Mm-hmm. And I found that really, um, really affecting. I, I speak in the book about a woman whose family, almost in her entire family, were killed by the Khmer Rouge. She came from a very middle class family. Um, urban middle class professional family and her family were exactly the you know the top of the priority mm-hmm. list for killing when the Khmer Rouge came to power because the regime wanted to produce a kind of a, a, a you know a ground zero and build a peasant society from that point up it was Maoist inspired um, and she when I asked her about what in what way did Buddhism guide her in her piecework. She was working for UNESCO, working with returnees, uh, Khmer Rouge families that had returned and were being resettled and so on. And she said that her job was to be kind to the Khmer Rouge. And it was quite, it was quite astonishing, mm. given that these were the people who had killed her family. But she drew on her account of dependent origination, her understanding of dependent origination uh, and saw her piecework as a spiritual practice. Her job was to manifest dependent origination. Mm-hmm. And that me- meant to be kind to those, even those who had supported. Now, she wasn't being kind to the killers, the kind of leadership, mm-hmm. but kind of peasants who had, you know, remained loyal to the Khmer Rouge and had been involved in supporting the regime. And she saw her job as being as to, you know, her job was to be kind to these people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that came from her uh, understanding of dependent origination. And this to me was immensely powerful um, in this context. She could do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, so I think about her quite often. I think, well, gosh. And I presume, Ali, sorry to cut across you there. It's not a, not a position of like passivity or tolerance. It's, it's, you know, an active engagement in the world to try and make the world better, fairer, more just, you know, but that this ethic is brought to bear on it, I think. Yes, because dependent origination suggests then a certain kind of an ethic. An ethic flows naturally from if dependent origination is the case, and indeed I believe it is, and certainly Buddhism says it is, then a certain kind of ethic must flow. Uh, If you act in a way which is contrary to the values of dependent origination, then you're sort of destroying the bonds that create human, that, that sustain human life for yourself and for that other person. So in a way she was... So for her, it was a spiritual practice for herself, mm-hmm. um, which was not a form of passivity. It required great resilience, actually, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and great confidence uh, and great faith and great trust to be able to show kindness to people. She mm-hmm. wasn't obliged to be kind to them. Mm-hmm. She was obliged to see to their reintegration um, Mm -hmm. and look after, you know, kind of the uh, uh, ensure that their reintegration was without great uh, um, social conflict. Mm -hmm. 
she certainly was not required to be kind to them. That was an effective response which came from her understanding of dependent origination. Anything but passive. Yeah, it's extraordinary. It really is. Um, I suppose just we'll, we'll be um, finishing up in a little while. But just before we do so, there's, a, there's two questions I want to ask you. One is you, and it kind of harps back this idea of the kind of the misuse of aspects of Buddhist thought um, and practice. And one of this is, is related to mindfulness. And you've talked about the importance of mindful, of, of engaging mindfully, for example, in activism. Um, and I think a lot of us are very familiar with the concept of mindfulness because for some of us, it's been kind of foist down our throats <laughs> and sort of like and it's been presented to us as a solution to all sorts of of like personal and workplace and other kinds of difficulties. And sort of you and in the book, you acknowledge that you acknowledge those kind of misuses or the problematic applications of mindfulness. But you also hold out for the possibility of, you know, better and more more socially engaged kind of notions of it. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Like this idea that there is a problem with, with mindfulness, but there isn't a problem with mindfulness too. Do you, know, you know, like, and there's a contradiction there. And how it's- yeah. One of the, one of the things of certainly about Zen Buddhism is that you learn pretty quickly to hold contradictions and paradoxes yes, at the I same time. So, yeah. yeah. We, we can hold, these things are both true. <laughs> they are yeah. both true and it's fine. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, this is very, I find this very helpful. <laughs> and also we're encouraged to be, uh, bring a certain uh, lightness to these paradoxes as well, not to get oppressed by them, not to try and think them out too much. So it's very helpful. Um, but yeah, I mean, as you say, we, we all became very, and I myself as, as a practitioner of mindfulness, which is part of my Buddhist practice, became very wearied by the, by the way in which mindfulness was presented as a solution for everything. I mean, it became quickly became part of the therapy culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I quote um, fellow academic Emily Pine in UCD, who was stressed. Um, she wrote a biography, uh, a memoir, described being uh, very stressed in her workplace where resources were being pulled back, staffing was being pulled back, expectations for performance had gone way up. Um, she was stressed. Um, she was advised to go for mindfulness classes. Mm-hmm. She did. Um, and she discovered that what she experienced was she used the term, um, what was it? Um, cannibalized. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That she, the experience was that she was being asked to further cannibalize herself, to further draw from herself the tools and the skills and the equipment to deal with the highly stressful uh, workplace environment in which she was being impinged upon and abandoned. And this she experienced as like consuming of herself. Mm. So, um, and uh, I, I found that a very, very nice way of describing what has happened. So then the question is, well, how does this mindfulness, because mindfulness is, uh, has come from, um, uh, from Buddhism. It is an idea that has come from Buddhism, although there are Christian contemplative traditions and, you know, um, uh, Islamic contemplative, you know, most of the major religions have a contemplative tradition. But the way in which it was presented and the roots of it and the language that are used in the Western kind of mindfulness movement are all from a Buddhist context. Mm. In fact, it's possible to trace the origin of uh, the origins of it to somebody called John Kabat-Zinn, mm-hmm. who uh, had a I think he had a Tibetan practice, but I'm not sure about that. Um, and he was a medical scientist uh, who was working with people with chronic pain, had been ha- had been 
had had a, a Buddhist practice or, or was continuing with his Buddhist practice, wondered about whether the mindfulness meditation would be helpful for his patients in the pain clinic, uh, received funding to develop um, some kind of programs, and, and, and it sort of took off after that. Um, so the mindfulness that was being uh, was folded into therapy culture and I think therefore was contributing to the rationalization and justification of neoliberal selfhood mm-hmm. had its roots there. But the way in which it was, it, you know, its long movement, its evolution uh, involved a necessary stripping away of the ethical aspects of Buddhism. And also, interestingly, Generally, you won't find in mindfulness classes um, concepts of dependent origination or emptiness of self being presented. Mm-hmm. So what's happened essentially is that the tool, the, the, the very the, the, that mindfulness has been stripped down to the kind of a set of tools. You sit, you know, quietly, you still your mind, you reflect deeply, you allow thoughts in, you allow them be, you allow them go. Um, so that's a tool, if you like. But it's been stripped of all of the other, all of the ethics, all of the cosmology, all of the philosophy. So, in fact, most people in the Buddhist world will now say, um, well, there's mindfulness. Fine. But it's got nothing really to do with Buddhism. It's something else. Okay, its roots are in in South Asia. Its roots are in Buddhism. But really, it's something else. And I think that's that's how I that's my orientation towards it now. Um so I I no longer get upset when, when I, I I think we we eased off on mindfulness though we don't hear so much about it in the last couple no. of years but it was so intense over about ten years wasn't it it really was I mean yeah. things have yeah it reached a pinnacle of and, it has. and then it becomes yesterday's news and then something yes undoubtedly come along to replace it I'm yes sure, you know um. That's really fantastic. I mean, Eilish, a final question I wanted to just ask you, um, and it really, I suppose, I mean, the purpose of this book is not to sort of, you know, tell everybody, you know, come out, you know, become a Buddhist. That's not what you're saying. But I think it is a powerful assertion of, you know, like the kind of like the the ethics of, of Buddhism, like a reassertion of them in the face of misunderstanding, which many of us might have about them, you know, first of all, but also saying that these can and will, you know, contribute to a kind of a, you know, like a, a liberatory political praxis. Do you know what I mean? Like there, you know, I mean? no, there, is, there is no tension, you know, there's no inherent tension there. And in fact, they may even sort of embolden it. They may even give it something kind of a stronger ethical foundation. Um, I suppose what I'm interested in is like, where would you like to take those ideas next? Or do you, mean, you know, like, or are you seeing kind of evidence that's exciting to you? Because I know you've been busy talking about the book and you've, you know, you've shared your ideas in many different contexts. And I just am interested to see like, what, what would you like to do next? Or, you know, are, are there kind of interesting opportunities that you've been having in terms of conversations with people about how, they ide- how these ideas can be, you know, given more life than you've already given them in the book? Um, I think... I think this may be a slow, <laughs> slow burning process, mm-hmm. uh, and that's fine by me. Um, I don't have any. Uh, I mean, I suppose at a personal level, I'd like to deepen my own. Pra- I'm retired now, so one mm-hmm. of the reasons I retired was to have an opportunity to kind of deepen my own practice a bit. So I'd I'd like to do some of that. Um, uh, 
And uh, But you know what I'm very interested in is the way in which many of these ideas um, are finding parallels in all kinds of other inquiries that are coming out. There's, there's a, um, an English, uh, he's a neurologist, psychiatrist, Ian McGilchrist. I don't know if you have come across him. No. Um, he's just published just in the last year a two-volume book. I mean, it's so large that they had to put it into two volumes and, it, and, and it's about a thousand pages in total, about 300 of which are footnotes. I mean, it's an incredibly scholarly piece of work. Um, and this book is about, uh, so he's a neurologist and, he, and his interest was in um, left-right hemispheres in the brain and, and the mind, how the mind works. And, um, you know, I, we, we don't have time to go into it now, but, but if anybody's interested in the kind of the, the uh, questions of how our minds work and what is consciousness um, and how to think about what's been happening, our minds or our psyches in the context of neoliberalism, as understood through neurology and neuroscience and psychiatry, his work is really helpful. Okay. And essentially what he's saying is it's very similar. I mean, my, you know, Self is a very small little book. It's a very modest book. It's 40,000 words, you know. But the argument I'm making is in some ways he's presenting the argument that I'm making from the perspective of neurology and neuroscience. Mm-hmm. His argument is essentially in in brief, in crude briefness and with apologies to Ian McGilchrist, that what what we've been seeing in the last, he he says recently, and he he doesn't bring any sort of social critique at all, but he does name bureaucratisation, technology, um, a couple of other sort of, yeah, bureaucratisation mostly. uh, Oh, yeah, kind of output driven workplaces um, the idea of measurability that, you know, all outcomes must be measurable. If they're not measurable, they're not relevant and how that gets translated into human life as well. So he's working in the same terrain. But his argument is that during this period, the left hemisphere of the brain has come to dominance in in all of our minds. And this has produced the kind of mind where the, the did I say the left hemisphere? Yes, the left hemisphere has come to dominance. And the left hemisphere is the part of the brain that focuses on processes. No, sorry, not on processes, but on procedures, on uh, it follows rules. um, It's it follows maps. It looks for details. It isolates the parts of things. It's very good at getting and grabbing, um, Mm -hmm. but doesn't see the big picture. It's the part of the brain that has the capacity to deny the reality around it. Mm-hmm. It's the part of the brain that moves very quickly to blaming and justifying itself. And then the uh, right hemisphere is the part of the brain that is relational, contextual, can deal with complexities and contradictions, uh, is more process orientated, uh, has an appreciation of the unspeakable, the unsayable, um, the sacred, he talks about the sacred. Um, so his argument is that the, the first part of the brain that I described is is in an elevated position in our psyches today in the world. And it is the, uh, and he, uh, this 
argument that he's making allows us to understand things like our ability to deny the fact that we are destroying the planet. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Because the uh, uh, left brain um, confabulates, um, denies reality. And this this is all based on evidence from medical science and neurology. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's very reassuring in a way to sort of read that what I describe, which is sort of philosophical at a philosophical level or based on, you know, wisps of things from culture and cultural trends is actually showing up uh, also in um, patterns of brain, patterns of our brain mm-hmm. and, and the elevation of, of the um, uh, left hemisphere over the right hemisphere. Um, so he's quite, he's sort of sounding alarm bells as well, you know. So, mm-hmm. you know, th- those voices that insist we can still pursue uh, endless growth despite a finite world and finite resources, that is um, that is left brain thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so this I'm finding this very exciting. <laughs> this is yeah, this is, is exciting me. This is allows kind of my own thinking uh, be expanded a little bit and and thankfully, um, I suppose it's it's supported and validated a little bit. And it has the makings of lots of interesting conversations with other people and other writers as well going forward, doesn't it? You know, so, yeah. Alicia, it's been absolutely fascinating. I think we're going to leave it there, but it's been such an interesting discussion. And thank you so much for, for participating. As I'm, I'm going to strongly encourage everybody who's listening to go and read the book as well. I think it's really, really valuable piece of work and I think it will really help people get a sense of the kind of the world that they're living in but also it throws out such fascinating ideas about how things can be different and why they should be different so thank you so much thank you very much Rosie it's been a great pleasure thank you